You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. And the New Yorker is always right. <laughs> um, okay, what I'm going to read from and, and what Terry was alluding to is uh, the, the books I'm writing at the moment are The Adventures of uh, a Gentleman Who Has Actually Two Names. Um, one of his names is Bobby Dollar, and the other is the Angel DeLoreal. He is, in fact, an angel, an earthbound angel, which means he lives in a human body and he lives on earth. And in fact, he lives here in the Bay Area, although it's a slightly different version of the Bay Area with a, um, a city that you all didn't know about, which exists down the peninsula called San Judas. And uh, Bobby's normal job is to be an advocate for the souls of the newly dead. In other words, when people die, there is immediately a judgment and uh, in a sort of a timeless place, um, the representatives of hell and heaven get together and uh, argue whether this soul should be sent on to heaven or should be handed over to hell for judgment and punishment. So in the first book, Bobby has a lot of adventures. Okay. Um, however, what I'm going to be reading from is the second book. And so I can't give you too much away because I'm hoping some of you will have or have read the first book. Um, I can't give too much away except to say that Bobby has fallen in love. The object of his affections is, in fact, a very high-ranking female demon, a member of the hellish nobility. Um, After a brief fling, she has been dragged back to hell by her former boyfriend, uh, the Grand Duke Elagor, who is one of the serious high rollers in hell. Bobby... Um, has found himself in a situation where he really feels the only thing he can do is to try to get her back, which means, of course, going to hell. And so a great deal of this uh, second book, the first book is called The Dirty Streets of Heaven. The second book is called Happy Hour in Hell. And a great deal of the second book actually does take place in hell, which, uh, you know, is kind of a fun place for a writer to hang out. I'm unfortunately, I've, I've had to kind of edit on the fly because it was quite a long section, and I thought we'd get here sooner than we did, so I may stop occasionally and skip something over. Anyway, all you really need to know, Bobby Dollar, a.k.a. DeLoreal, is an angel. He is in hell. He is wearing a demonic body. He was given that body in return for promising to do somebody a favor, which is what he's now trying to do, and he's in search of his girlfriend, Kaz, otherwise known as Casimira, the Countess of Cold Hands. And that's probably should do it. (laughs) Hell is a big cylinder, as I think I told you. Uh, Imagine somebody dug a hole down into hardened lava, all the way down to where it gets squishy and murderously hot again. Now, remember those cake tins Grandma Flossie used to send you at Christmas with ugly-ass fruitcakes in them year after year? Okay, take a near-infinite number of those tins and stack them in the hole on top of each other so the bottom is in molten goo and the top of each tin is the bottom of the next. I came into this charming arrangement near the middle. There are cities on every level, but also lots of wilderness roamed by bandits, monsters, worse stuff. Remember, it's hell so they made it big. 
even with the more enlightened sentencing laws of the last 100 years or so, it still has to hold billions. Anyway, I had to get to the top or near it to reach Kaz. There's a sort of elevator system, they call them lifters, that runs right through it like the string of a necklace. But that was like knowing there's an elevator in Montana when you're on the Oregon coast. The famous rivers of hell, Styx and Acheron and others, also provide a way to travel, but first you have to be near a river, which we weren't. So, at least while I handled Temuel's errand, I was going to have to make my way up one level at a time, which we did, although it took a couple of days just to find our way out of the level of Abaddon, where I started. By the way, I forgot. His only companion at this point is a, uh, a, a very small person, demon, damned soul, who was born in hell named Gob. Um, and being born in hell is pretty much as ugly and nasty as you would imagine. Anyway, to my surprise, Gob decided to stick with me once we finally reached the next level up, a dismal wasteland of stone and mud and smoking sulfur that was so god-awful even the damned avoided the place. There were settlements, of course, but they were like the smallest, poorest, hottest, driest cattle stations in the Australian outback, if someone had pounded on them for, for a week with a 50-ton hammer made of compacted fly shit. I don't know how long we traveled through the levels of Abaddon, climbing up from one parched landscape the color of dried shit to another, past ugliness and misery so vast I had stopped paying attention, but it must have been at least a week before we found ourselves somewhere different. Asphodel Meadows seemed more open than Abaddon, perhaps because the great stone ceiling seemed farther away here. And it was certainly less dry and desolate, but it made up for that with boiling swamps that could only be crossed on bobbing, leathery, aquatic leaves, some of which looked, and were, it turned out, more like Venus flytraps than lily pads. We spent days in these weird twilight swamps, sloshing through mud and kicking our way through thorny vines, dodging murderous flora and fauna and generally besieged by ugly buzzing insects the size of sparrows. To add to the charm, many of these brackish swamp ponds in Asphodel Meadows were surrounded by the bodies of the damned, purple and bloated, but still twitching. Even poison couldn't kill you in hell, it seemed, although the way, from the way some of the shapes were wheezing and whimpering, I suspected they would have been happier dead. What terrible thirst had driven them down to drink from such obviously unsafe waters? I patted the bag of water Gob had stolen from us, stolen for us somewhere back in Abaddon, where we had filled, which we had filled the last time at a clean but unpleasant-tasting spring, bubbling at the edge of the meadows. The bag had clearly been made from the innards of something or someone I didn't want to think about. But right now, the water in it was all that kept us from joining those bulging near cadavers, some of them split and venting gases, but still not managing to die. I couldn't exactly feel good looking at the victims of thirst we passed, but I could sure feel grateful I wasn't one of them. I was afraid I was beginning to understand hell. The flat leaves were as treacherous beneath our feet as pieces of floating plywood, and a lot more hostile. In general, the flytrap plants left us alone. We were probably a bit too big to digest, but a few of the bolder ones tried to nibble on us anyway. I managed to pull Gob out of one of them as it folded up on him, just before the camouflage spines sank into his flesh, at which point a truck with a chain pull probably couldn't have yanked him loose. His lower half was all covered with hissing goo, which I scraped off him as best I could with one of the thing's thorns, getting myself smeared with the acid stuff, too. 
When we staggered off the last leaf onto a patch of comparatively dry ground, we immediately threw ourselves down and rolled in the mud, desperate to stop the burning itch. Gob didn't cry, even when I pulled a thorn out of his calf the size of a pencil, which amazed me since pieces of his skin were also coming off in tatters around it, wet but burned. I guess the crybaby got kicked out of most people down here pretty quickly. <laughs> we climbed tailless slopes of spiky, salty crystals and even staggered through a forest of dead trunks and a flurry of caustic snow. Yes, it snows in hell. All that till hell freezes over bullshit is just that. <laughs> it snows in hell all the time. It just isn't frozen water. I won't spend a lot of time talking about it because well, because it's disgusting. But I traveled through quite a few snowstorms in hell. Some of them were acid. Some were flurries of frozen piss. Some of the things that piled up in drifts as we staggered through the gusts weren't even liquids. But all of them stung. By the time we'd slept three or four more times, the empty spaces of the Asphodel Meadows began to resemble something a little closer to their name. Dark, soggy bogs full of pale flowers. Fog crept in, softening the ugly outlines and eventually obscuring them completely. In the mist, I could see shapes, many of them upright, but if they saw us, they didn't, they didn't acknowledge it. Instead, they wandered among the asphodel stalks, plucking the gray blooms and stuffing them in their mouths as tears dribbled down their cheeks. Eventually, I managed to work out from Gob's monosyllabic answers that everybody in hell ate the flowers in some form, baked into bread or flat cakes, but that those who ate flowers, ate the flowers raw, experienced the sins of their lives over and over like a bad acid trip. Worst of all, though, was that the more they consumed and the more they wallowed in their own terrible mistakes and cruelties, the more of it they wanted. The few asphodel eaters I saw up close had staring eyes and quivering fingers like Hieronymus Bosch crackheads. It was hard to remember that compared to many, these creatures were among hell's most fortunate. The few who'd managed to find a place for themselves somewhere between an eternity of slavery in the high houses of the demon lords and an eternity in the torture pits below. Eternity. That's still stuck in my craw. I knew that some of these people must have been the worst sort of folks when they were alive. Murderers, rapists, child molesters, Republicans. <laughs> I honestly didn't mind them getting even a few centuries of hellfire, but forever? Even if the damned remembered who they were and what they'd done to get there, unlike my friends and I at the compasses, how meaningful could any punishment be after a million years? Who could even remember what they'd done? And what about the ones like Kaz, who'd been driven to their crimes by others? She'd killed her husband, sure, but if anyone had deserved to get stabbed into a bloody hash, that guy had. I couldn't stop thinking about it as we trudged through these, those misty, squelching meadows past rows of nodding, pale, death-pale blossoms, the little damned ballast boy following at my heels like a feral dog, perhaps having the most fun he'd ever had in his squalid, miserable, but still nearly endless life. God knows I tried to stop dwelling on the horror of it, but the unwanted thought kept coming back to me again and again. Eternity? Really? Okay, now I'm going to skip forward over a bunch of stuff I edited out. Um, he has reached a place called uh, Cocytus Landing. Cocytus is another one of the rivers of hell. And he's in search of the sinner's market where he's supposed to find this person that he's doing a favor by passing a message to. 
If I'd thought Abaddon was ugly, I was going to have to find a new word for Cocytus Landing, which looked like it had been discarded next to the river by some glacier with a grudge. You've heard of shanty towns, right? Well, Cocytus Landing was pretty much a shanty city, as cheaply and dangerously constructed as the meanest hovels of Abaddon, but on a much grander scale, a monstrous, multi-leveled walled slum centered around the river docks. The first notice I first difference I noticed between this and Abaddon was the industriousness of the place. Not everybody was working, of course, but a huge section of the populace did seem to be doing something, whether hauling spiky logs from the forest on creaky wooden carts, or whipping the slaves and other beasts of burden pulling those carts, or unloading and loading the bizarre ships which bobbed at anchor along the docks. In many ways, I was beginning to realize hell was a lot more like earth than it was like heaven. Heaven was like a century tripping on E, all laughing and singing and dancing and not caring or even remembering. Hell was gritty and dirty, but things actually worked. The damned made things and struggled for existence and to avoid pain. They ate and shat and fornicated just like people, but they would suffer forever. We waded on through the crush of obscenely disfigured bodies, few of them even disguised by clothing, past creatures with faces like turtles and insects and heads covered with running sores and even a few things that were almost nothing but one large running sore. The entire city breathed screams and moans around us like the horns of a bad New York rush hour, but I had spotted a great pool of torchlight ahead that seemed to be the source of the loudest cries, and I guess that must be our destination, the slave market. Just ignore this other shit and fine rip rash, I told myself. Then you can go after Kaz. I could almost see her in front of me then, a small shining thing against all the darkness of this dark place, and, and for a moment I was calm. I had something to do. All this horror was for a reason. I couldn't afford to forget that. Weirdly, as I thought of her, a noise rose above the caterwauling crowds, a thin thread of music, slow and mournful. It was a woman's voice, or at least something female, and the wordless melody was so old and simple and arresting that I'm sure it had been sung beside some great river on earth thousands of years ago and is probably still being sung there today. Some, some song of the women who squat in the muck beside the Indus or the Nile to wash their clothes. Here, it was probably coming from some toad thing who had been in hell so long she couldn't even remember that Euphrates mud had once squelched between her toes. But somehow she still remembered the tune and croaked it to herself as she patted together cakes of excrement to dry and burn for fuel. It gave me chills. It was the most human thing I'd heard either in hell or in heaven. And for a moment, I almost completely forgot where I was. Then somebody got angry and poked out someone's eye right beside me, and the moment was over. Let's see how much I've got left, whether I should... How are we doing time-wise? I can't tell how long I've been... We've got a little more. Can I take a couple more minutes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. The Sinner's Market is about as nice a place as it sounds. It's largely held under the roof perimeter of a ruined and ramshackle stone coliseum, although during my visit there was a huge open area in the middle being used as well. What was being sold in the market was, well, sinners, slaves. Most of them were in transition, not from freedom to slavery, 
uh, but from one kind of specialized slavery to another. But just because these were valuable slaves, many of whom had been trained to do specific jobs or even physically altered so they could do them better, didn't mean they were treated well. I had been seeing how the ordinary folk of hell treated each other, and it was truly horrifying. But now that I was seeing what organized cruelty looked like and the sheer weight of hell as an institution, it suddenly became clear to me. I would see worse things in hell, and God knows I'd suffer worse things, but nothing ever stepped on my spirit as badly as those first few minutes in the clanking, begging, wailing, and roaring of the sinner's market. It was like coming to the end of some very long scientific article and then finding the summary at the bottom. The universe is shit. Okay, one last little point. He is now hooked up. He's met this guy, Rip Rash, who is a, a very large demon who works at the sinner's market. And just before he's had a chance to deliver his message to Rip Rash, the local um, bigwig, whose name is Nylock, the commissar of wings and claws, has arrived. Um, so the, the, uh, so the, ogre, he's, the ogre's waiting to get the message. Bobby is desperate to give it to him, but he's also desperate to escape before this guy comes in because, of course, Bobby's not supposed to be there. He's an angel. And the ogre helps to hide him inside this cage full of unwashed, recently arrived slaves as this guy Nylock is showing up. So that's the last bit I'm going to read. I got myself into an awkward crouch so that I had less chance of being crushed and a slightly better angle to see what was going on. Our end of the stall was rapidly filling now with demon guards, most of them closer in size to Rip Rash than to me. The commissar's soldiers moved with the grace of pepper-sprayed water buffaloes, knocking over everything that wasn't staked to the ground, stepping on everything that was, and yanking on the neck chains of slaves until I heard vertebrae snap. It was like watching a troop of baboons investigating a structure made of twigs and meat. Yet even these inhuman monstrosities turned up their noses at our cage and did no more than jab at a few of the more exposed slaves with their spears, just for fun. After a while, the soldier demons got bored of pulling things apart. They were just starting to wander off, and I was beginning to feel I might actually survive the afternoon when a group of what looked like nastier and more serious versions of the first set of thugs stomped into view and immediately began throwing slaves and slave masters alike to the floor of the stall. Then the commissar walked in. I swear I felt something like a shock of cold air before I saw him, along with a faint smell of vinegar and something rotting. Then he was standing before the only employee of Gag Snatch Brothers, Slavery, and Other Awful, still standing, namely Rip Rash, my contact. The newcomer was not one of those demons who wastes a lot of energy trying to look like anything human. In fact, at first I could barely tell where Commissar Nylock began and everything else left off because he was covered with horn-like excretions and rattling bone-white tendrils that curled out of his black armor like stray hairs, making him look a little like one of those fancy frilly seahorses you only see in aquariums. His face was a little like a seahorse's too, long, angular, and bony, but no seahorse ever had such evil little blood-drop eyes. Oh, my good heart, Nylock said, looking around. He was almost as tall as, as Riprash, but despite his armor and helmet, the rattling bone tendrils made him seem as fragile as the slenderest coral. Still, I don't think anyone could have looked at the commissar's gleeful face and imagined mere strength would defeat such a creature. 
Oh, my charitable works, what is this? A bottom dweller, a shit sucker who does not bow to the commissar of all the meadows and beyond. But why would someone thwart me when all I wish to do is kindness? He extended an arm crusted by a whorl of horns. Why do you insult me, fellow? Why do you hate your rightful master so? Even listening to his lilting voice made my stomach turn over. It was as if someone had taken the skin off your favorite grandfather and made a balloon, then let the air squeak out of it in musical bursts. The stench, the horror of the slave market all flew away like leaves in a gale before that voice. I would gladly have burrowed down into the dung and stayed there forever to avoid the thing named Nylock noticing me. But Riprash, I guess, was made of sterner stuff. I waited until you were close enough to show you uh, proper respect, Commissar. The ogre lowered his vast body to one knee, but I could tell he didn't like this Nylock much. Ah, to be sure, to be sure. And what slave would not risk the anger of the Commissar of the Dismal Fields to protect his employer's slaves from being disturbed? His jaw, a bony thing at the base of his equine skull, spread to reveal a row of teeth that seemed too different and too long for even that strange mouth. What property of your masters are you so diligently protecting? Hmm? He took a step forward, his legs creaking and sawing as his tangles of horn rubbed together. What could be worth keeping even from beloved Nylock? Hmm? Another step forward. The terrible rattling thing was only a few paces from the cage. Riprash started to get up, but Nylock stopped and pointed at him. Do you object to my inspection? That is a serious thing, slave. Souls have gone into the holes between stars, overless. The fluting voice rose. Do you object to Commissar Nylock doing his rightful work? For a moment, against all sense, I prayed that Riprash would do something crazy. Run, shout, hit the commissar in his bony face, anything that might cause enough ruckus to allow Gob and I to escape. Then I remembered that we were locked in a cage. Even if they burned the stall to the ground, we weren't going anywhere. Riprash made a rumbling noise deep in his chest but didn't say anything. Then his big head dipped. Of course not, your wickedness. Our place is, uh, is yours. Ah, lovely. The commissar spat a long thread of something onto the ground. That's all right, then. I'll just come over and have a closer look. Shall I? And so he did, stinking of death and vinegar. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom slash agony.